All Saints Sunday was last Sunday, and we talked about the issues of sanctity, how do we cultivate it, what is it that we uh, seek when we think about um, sanctity, and uh, I made, in my sermon, I said that oftentimes we have a far too heroic view of what sanctity means and that sometimes the heroism that people express in their life and the sanctity that they learn and exhibit comes from ordinary and commonplace challenges and opportunities that are in front of them. I mention this because uh, in the readings from the book of Ruth and from the gospel, we may have some examples of ordinary and commonplace sanctity and how we make sense of it as we live seeking to know uh, how to live a life congruent with God's purposes for us. So most of the sermon is going to be spent on the book of Ruth, and then I'll say something about the gospel where we have the story of what is known as the widow's might, M-I-T-E, not the bug, something else. Last Sunday, because it was All Saints, uh, we didn't read the intro in the first part of the book of Ruth, so I'm going to do a little, uh, speak a, a little bit about that. And then today we read the conclusion or the important uh, part of the book of Ruth where the rubber hits the road. There isn't usually every couple of years uh, some couple who's going to get married at St. Luke's, somebody says, oh, I want you to read that wonderful passage at our wedding from the book of Ruth. Whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. You know? So I say, well, we can read it, but you need to know that Ruth is speaking to Naomi and not to Boaz. <laughs> I was the rector of Christchurch Sausalito, I had a, a, a woman say to me in my office, oh, they won't know. <laughs> and you know what the, the, the heck of it was? She was right. <laughs> you know, where do you start except that when you're a member of the clergy, you feel like a complete and utter failure. So let's say some things about the book of Ruth. You know, it's not a fluff piece in Hollywood notwithstanding. It has some important things to say about God's inclusiveness. It has some important things to say about the continuity of God's purposes in the great tradition for the people of the covenant and for Christian men and women. It has a lot to say to us about the genealogies which loomed large for the uh, early Christians because we will discover that Ruth is King David's grandmother. And the significance of that I'll speak to uh, in a few minutes. So all of this gets played out in the, in the book of Ruth, and it's an important thing. In biblical scholarship, there are some issues regarding the date of the writing of the book of Ruth. So there is a school that believes this book was written before the exile to Babylon, pre-exilic, to use the fancy term. And then there are those who believe it was written after the exile. And the reason that may be important to some is because then it has an influence on what you think the reason for the writing of it is. 
because it mentions that it was in the time of the judges in the story, this is why it's located where it's located in the Old Testament. It's among the earlier books of the, of the Old Testament because there's some issues about the fact that there was no monarchy yet. So uh, you can pay your money and take your choice. For me, I think all of the reasons that those who worry about the dates uh, think we need to pin it down because they're all godly things. They're all good things. So I'll start to explain some of this. The, if you know the story, Ruth and, uh, gee, I can, Oprah, Oprah, Oprah. Uh, they're Moabite women, and they get hooked up with, with uh, Naomi, who's uh, Hebrew, and uh, they're married to men who uh, uh, died. And so now we have to face something that's one of the reasons for why the book of Ruth is written, and it's called the Liberate, Liberate Law. So I thought, which, which means that if a woman has a husband who dies, and they're living with a family, the extended family, they have all the brothers. The rule is that one of those brothers marries the woman and continues to have children with her so that his dead brother, his name continues. In the book of Deuteronomy, there's a rule about it, so I thought I'd read it to you. Deuteronomy 25. When brothers reside together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, taking her in marriage and performing the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the firstborn whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the deceased brother, so that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man has no desire to marry his brother's widow, then his brother's widow shall go up to the elders at the gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and speak to him. If he persists, saying, I have no desire to marry her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, spit in his face, and declare, this is what is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. Throughout Israel, his family shall be known as the house of him whose sandal was pulled off. <laughs> so, watch it. This is, this is not kidding around stuff, isn't it? <laughs> so we're going to see, you see, at the end of this thing, Boaz is related, is, and so it's all going to work in some way, and it supports Leverate marriage. Here are the other reasons that are going to connect to this and why this uh, may be important. The first one is that uh, we have two other books in the Old Testament. 
Ezra and Nehemiah. In Ezra and Nehemiah, it said post-exilic. Uh, if you come back from the exile and you have been, you are married to a woman who is a foreigner, a Moabite, you should get rid of her and marry uh, someone who is an Israelite. So Ezra and Nehemiah are clear about this. If this book was written after the exile, then it is a counterbalance to, this, to Ezra and Nehemiah, and it is an affirmation that there has always been a thread running through the Hebrew Bible of the importance of inclusion. The second issue about whether or not uh, King David is related to Ruth has to do with the greatest king of Israel has a grandmother who's a foreigner. And it's okay. And for Christian men and women, if we read the genealogies in Matthew, and we see that Matthew has, Je has Jesus related to King David, that means in his lineage, he has uh, a mixed bag as well, which is an affirmation and a, and a further testimony of the inclusive nature of his ministry in his preaching and teaching because he is announcing in his person and through his words and his work that the, the sacred literature of the people of Israel have, has always demonstrated that God's inclusive saving embrace is not merely for the people of the covenant, but for everyone. And that through him, he is announcing that the time has come. Since Jesus believed that the exile and many of his contemporaries had not come to its full, the return from exile, had not come to its full completion, he is announcing now that we have seen in our common life together as community and in our sacred literature that this has always been part of the plan of God and it begins now or completes itself now in me. And part of that is the affirmation that uh, this is for everybody and even in my ancestry, I have somebody who is not Hebrew but a Moabite. So it's a pretty good commercial message for some form uh, of inclusion. Ruth, um, is told by Naomi what to do. And notice that Naomi uh, refers to the child that Ruth has as hers, right? Because of this extended family setup that we're talking about in this particular case. Some of you may wonder what it was about uncovering his feet and lying uh, at his feet. Let me just say, because I have been to seminary, <laughs> that feet is a euphemism. And I will leave it there because this is a church. <laughs> so, it's what Father Hunt used to say all the time. So you need to do your own research in the, in the languages. Some of the commentators who are being gentle say, the use of the word feet may be a euphemism. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> so what do we learn from this? We learn something about the nature of God's inclusive work in the world. We learn that God works in and through people who don't appear to be in initially. 
We, we, we also know that God's restoring power is always available to people. And uh, on the side of what you hear me say all the time of our need to respond to the divine initiative within each of us and begin in each of us, this reading from Ruth, in fact, the whole book of Ruth, speaks about a concept called chesed, which is steadfast love. So what is demonstrated here in the kind of Augie side of it is a steadfast love that Ruth has for her adopted family and for Naomi and for all of those people. The steadfast love Naomi has for Ruth. The steadfast love that Boaz has for Ruth and for his commitment to his wider family. And in the overall understanding of the book of Ruth, the chesed that all the people express for God and for God's purposes. God's steadfast love for them is reciprocated through their generosity of expressing this steadfast love to, them, to others and to God by their behavior and actions. And in this case, in showing their inclusivity. So this is an important book. It's something that's worth reading and thinking about. Uh, it's, it is. So let me say a word to you about the widow's might and about Jesus. He had a fairly agreeable uh, contra contretemps with the scribes last week, which we didn't read because it was All Saints Sunday. So they didn't seem to be at great loggerheads particularly, but today he's over all over them all like a cheap suit, right? <laughs> they got their robes on, they're walking around, you know, they're acting, they say long prayers and so on, you know. I don't pay much attention to that, maybe because that's because I got these long robes on and I'm doing all this stuff. <laughs> but I don't, think, I don't think that's really, you know, there's no, no, no indication that Jesus had any instinct to uh, overturn all of that uh, in, in, in what we read and what we know about, about the thought world. What he's talking about, isn't he, is the disparity that exists between the letter and the spirit and the hypocrisy that is often uh, demonstrated by people in all kinds of leadership, not just clerical. And so when we see that there is a deep uh, disparity between those two things, um, he is right to uh, criticize it and to speak against it because it is not authentic. And so the widow comes in on this. The scene would be at the temple and where he is in the temple, there are a whole lot of chests that have been set up to collect money. And on each chest is a sign that says, this is what the money will be used for. So he's watching the people put the money in. And he sees this poor widow who comes and puts two copper coins in one of the chests. And he says that, um, you know, this is, this is somebody who, who really means business compared to these people who are extremely generous but want to have in some way some big allocate for what it is that they're doing. Accolade, excuse me. And uh, this widow 
uh, has given the whole of her substance. There's no comment in here about the wisdom of that decision on her part, by the way. <laughs> right? You know? So, so we need to be careful about that. This is a stewardship passage. This is why it's in the lectionary for this time of year. So, you know, you can, pre you, you, you can preach about uh, the fact that um, uh, somebody, uh, th th that, you know, little dinky pledges are as good as huge pledges, which is true, right? But St. Luke's will grateful to, to, to any of you who give at whatever level you give. But it's really not about that. It's about somebody who gets it. And the, and the widow is all in. She's all in. So, so that's what this is about. It's not about how much. It's about the fact that she's all in. And it's at least ambiguous that the leadership wandering around and the scribes are all in. You know? They may talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. And so this is something about that. You know, if you read the whole of the Gospels, most the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, some of them emphasize certain aspects of this more than others. Luke is very interested in economic disparity and issues of justice and equity with regard to our economic life. Uh, Matthew is concerned more than Mark in some ways, and yet you see it here today, with motives and the interior spiritual, emotional, and mental states of people uh, with regard to how they understand their generosity, how they understand who they are, their self-image, their ability for self-deception. Jesus speaks a lot about that in Matthew's gospel. And in Mark, is the earliest gospel, we have all of these things uh, present but the other gospel writers are going to uh, flesh them out. Why? Because they're a little bit later, and they may have something to do with the lived pastoral experience of these Christian communities out of which these writings emerge. So you and I, here in 2009, are in a position to also continuously struggle with those <coughs> questions and to say to ourselves, how do we understand that? And one of the things that seems to be clear from the biblical witness is that all of us in our personal lives, in our relational lives, and in our interest in seeing the society become a, a better place, need to have some interest in having the letter and the spirit come more closely together. And this is what this passage is about, that we need to, we need to do that. For the widow, it was clear, and she was in. So, this week, Give thanks for God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness for the inclusive work of God's steadfast love, God's chesed for you. And ask God to help you give it back, that steadfast love in every aspect of your life. Sometimes it's hardest to do it with the people that are closest to us. I don't know why that's true, but it seems to be. I've always been a believer. You're going to think I'm a terrible cynic, but I've always believed in the maxim, you know, that um, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. <laughs> I believe that. I do. And when we live together and be together, sometimes we just say, if she doesn't have something, <laughs>
right? And it's never usually about the big stuff, is it? You know. So give thanks for the opportunity to express that steadfast love and to see that the generous spirit begins at home, but it also it, uh, uh, it has something to do with how you express it outside. That's what we mean by generosity. That's what we mean by sacrificial giving. That's what we mean by the use of your talents and abilities to build up and not to tear down. So give thanks for those things. Give thanks also for the fact that God is laboring on a daily basis to get us to see how important it is to include those different from us. But that is part of the gospel witness. You know, you don't have to do this in some enormous politically correct fashion or hang banners up. You don't need to do that. But you need in your own life to resolve that in some way you're willing to extend and to see uh, the, the ability that uh, a, a more plural environment brings to each of us. What a great thing it is. So give thanks for all those possibilities on this Sunday. Amen. And now coffee. Sir, I cannot say, but that was one of the best. Oh, gosh.